I am honored to be sponsored by the Department of Sociology, History, and Economics, uh, and I particularly thank uh, Professor Nicole Ulrich for her many kindnesses. I'm very proud to be uh, hosted by the Neil Agate Labor Studies uh, Unit, and that my lecture today is called a Labor Studies Seminar, which I assume means that it is open to questions and that there will, there will be time for that. I think questions are essential, and I have never given a lecture where I have not ended it by asking for questions. I'm honored to be associated with the memory of Neil Agate, a migrant to South Africa, a physician to the poor, a trade unionist on behalf of African food workers, and an activist against apartheid. His death in police custody in 1982 strikes a chord with me because just before I came here from the Great Lakes region of North America, a young woman named Sandra Bland also died while in police custody and foul play is widely suspected as she was an activist from Chicago in the Black Lives Matter. So Neil Agate's fate is not history. I'm also very pleased to be at an institution headed by Dr. Sizwe Mabizela. Please indulge a foreigner's incapacity with the many languages and names of Southern Africa. <clears throat> Thank you. His inaugural address to the university I read recently. He expresses gratitude to many people, and I do the same, especially to my wife and daughters, to my parents, and to my comrades in the freedom struggle. I am happy to learn that Dr. Mabizela opposes the commodification of knowledge, and that he believes that the university must produce knowledge, foster students, and promote social responsibility, which he stresses means combating deep inequality and the instability of our planet's ecology. I am proud to be associated with that mission Among those to whom he dedicated his lecture was Mr. Stephen Biko. And I take a moment to tell him that in 1982, I was in Boston teaching at Tufts University when the students in a campaign to have the university divest from corporations doing business in apartheid Africa took over the administration building and we renamed it Stephen Biko Hall. Finally, I thank him for the slogan of his lecture, or I see it as a slogan, which is not business as usual, but business unusual. Oh, and one more thing. I could tell that he's a true teacher. Because he, because he could not conceal his love of truth 
and beauty. When he stated the fact that the number six is beautiful, (laughs) one of the perfect numbers, I didn't know. This afternoon, I do not have a perfect number in any sense. But I have two numbers that will shape my lecture. The first number is the number 800. 800 years ago, on the 15th of June, 1215, according to the Christian calendar, a bad and evil king of England was forced to agree to an armistice in a civil war. This armistice became known as the Magna Carta, which is Latin for Big Charter. Now, it was not big in a literal sense, perhaps the size of an A4 piece of paper, though it was written on parchment, not paper, that is, on animal skin. Latin was the language of the ruling class of the time, a European-wide language for the clerks and priests who until recently had monopolized all writing. Uh, King John and the rulers looked down upon writing. They were proud of their illiteracy. The common people spoke varieties of English. Now, Magna Carta was translated first, not into English, but French, because the English ruling class spoke French as they were descendants of the conquerors from France. It was several decades before it was translated into English. What's my point? In its origins, it was an international document as it has become since. It has 63 chapters. Don't worry, these chapters just are a line or two. Last month, on the 15th of June, I went to England and brought with me a video called A Juneteenth Message for the Commoners of Runnymede. And before the lecture is over, I will explain Juneteenth to you. But who knows? Good. Runnymede is a place in England along the river where this Magna Carta deal, armistice, was arranged. Anyway, I took this video so that the Queen of England could hear what Magna Carta means to us in the Black Lives Movement in the Great Lakes of North America. We read aloud its chapter 39, perhaps the most famous one of all, though it is, as I shall explain, a lonely child without its sister. Now this chapter 39, I am going to read to you. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way. 
nor shall we proceed against him or send others to do so, except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by due process of law. Now that's it. Chapter 39. You've heard it. Look, I'm going to go somewhere, but I like the Cliptown Charter. Don't get me wrong. A few years ago, I visited Sueto and saw and read the Cliptown Charter. Please don't get me wrong. I respect and have the constitutional histories and turmoils of South Africa. But I'm speaking here of a charter which has influenced it, that is South Africa, as well as my so-called country, the USA. So you've heard chapter 39. From it, several enduring principles of law have been derived. I refer, first of all, to habeas corpus. The writ that prohibits detention or arrest without an indictment. That is, without a charge. They have to tell you why they are detaining you. That is the first principle of chapter 39. A second principle of law derived from chapter 39 is the absolute prohibition of torture. Thirdly, chapter 39 refers to trial by jury. That, your, that justice must come from your peers, that is, from your equals. And finally, this ch- chapter 39 refers to the expression due process of law, which is the most creative phrase in the United States Constitution, having been put there and applied to all the states of the USA only after the American Civil War to emancipate slaves. Thus, the freedom struggle of African Americans brought this fundamental principle of Magna Carta to American law. Okay, I was unable to bring this to the attention of the Queen of England (coughs) last June 15th at Runnymede. She was prevented from seeing our video or hearing our words at a festival of democracy because she was busy unveiling a new statue of herself. And besides, there were many dogs, several helicopters, and four different types of government police were on hand for security purposes, not to assure that our festival took place peacefully, but to guard the person of the queen. She was thus, unlike you, deprived of this knowledge. 
The importance uh, of chapter 39 cannot be overstressed, especially in the USA, because the USA has the largest prison population in the world, and it locks up hugely, disproportionately, young men of color. The route from the plantation of slavery days to the penitentiary, jail, and prison of our days is straightforward. Therefore, we need to remember what Frederick Douglass told to the Cincinnati Women's Anti-Slavery Sewing Circle of 1854. My grandmother taught me to sew on a button. And that's about it. I can't sew my own clothes. Here is Frederick Douglass addressing the ladies. Let the engine of Magna Carta beat against the Jericho walls of slavery. And no seven days blowing of the ram's horn would be necessary. Or listen to the magnificent words of Timothy Thomas Fortune. The fires of revolution are incorporated into Magna Carta of our liberties. And no human power can avert the awful eruption which will eventually burst upon us as Mount Vesuvius burst forth upon Herculaneum and Pompeii. Timothy Thomas Fortune, by the way, coined the expression African-American. He was a great newspaper journalist who edited the Negro World, the newspaper with the largest circulation in the world in the 1920s. It is time for chapter 39 of Magna Carta to be brought back to once again be held in veneration by Democrats throughout the world. To quote Nelson Mandela at the Rivonia trial. So there, students and colleagues, comrades and friends, is my first number, 800. 800 years ago. Now there is a second number whose importance I want to convey to you. And it is the number 11, as in the 11th of September. We know this date of 2001 because it was a bombing act of terror against more than 3,000 workers in New York City. It became the excuse to launch a so-called war on terror that, of course, is nothing of the kind and is actually a war of terror. However, this is not the reason I bring up the number 11 or the 11th of September. On the 11th of September, 1217, a treaty between England and France was written in Lambeth in England. Remember I told you how on the 15th of June, 1215, Magna Carta was assented to in Runnymede? 
Just a few months afterwards, I think King John had his fingers crossed because the Pope annulled the Magna Carta, said it was no good, and civil war resumed, and a French king invaded England. King John, by the way, died. I, I will not tell you how, in case you were wondering. But I shall tell you what William Morris said, the peasants said, on how he died. So here's a story from below. They said the King John was traveling about the coast when the tide suddenly rushed in and he lost his baggage and got all wet. He went to a monastery and banged on the door. The monks gave him hospitality. How much did this bread cost? The king roared. Oh, one penny, they answered. Well, it shall cost 12 pence before the year is out, said the king. Now, there was a young monk at the back who decided that his time had come. He went into the garden and plucked a few plums for the king. He removed the pits and inserted poison and then served the king. Sire, you first, monk. So the monk took a plum and ate. Then the king ate. Then the monk turned blue and fell down dead right before the king's eyes, who then turned blue and fell down dead. Thus did King John die. The plums had recently come from the Middle East, from the Holy Land. They were a gift of the Crusades. They were tended in a monastic commons. We might see the young monk as a suicide bomber. But back to the 11th of September. 1217. A second charter had been lost. That is, the charter of the forest. And it was retrieved on that date, the 11th of September, 1217. And the two charters have ever since stood at the beginning of the statutes at large of English law. Now, subsequent scholars... Uh, Edward Cook in the 17th and William Blackstone in the 18th century considered them always together as the charters of English liberty. The charter of the forest goes with Magna Carta. I see them as sisters. One of them restricts the overmighty power of sovereignty and the other introduces for us some practicalities of commons or subsistence. And 
The second sister, the charter of the forest, is indeed smaller. Indeed, that is why the big one is called Magna. I, I saw these two charters um, just a few weeks ago over there in England. They're so precious, you can't even read them. Unlike the Clifton Charter, which I think is carved in metal, and it's in a circular thing there in Soweto, you can go right up to it and just read it before your eyes. But the charters of the Magna Carta and the Little Charter are kept in a vault. The vault's in a prison. The prison's in a castle. The castle, the prison, the vault, the basement, a darkened room, a transparent box, a single light, and there's the charter. But no matter how close you get, you can't read it. So I took, I was going to take a picture. The warder, or the guard, told me not to. Not because of the flash, you know, with a, I don't need to do a flash. They couldn't give a reason. Anyway, I was disturbed at this treatment of chapter 39. <clears throat> Enough. The chart of the forest. It has 19 provisions, and there's four of them that I want to bring to your attention. The first one, are, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? The first one is sweet. Every free man shall, also, shall have also the honey that is found in the woods. It's a good one, eh? Second, no man from henceforth shall lose either life or member for killing our deer. And this, I think, is a great step forward in the history of sovereignty, preventing it from killing us. For the rulers were murderous with hanging instincts. There was a fishmonger in London by the name of Andrew Horn, and he wrote a book called The Mirror of Justices in that same century. That is, he, he put a mirror up to the face of the justices. Now there's only one king in all of England who is called great. Does anyone know who? Good, I'm, I'm glad that no hands raised, because then it makes me think I'm doing my job. <laughs> that king is Alfred, Alfred the Great. He's very well known because he ran away from battle, and a lady was cooking, who took him in, and asked him, while she went out to get some water, to look after the cakes which were on the stove. But he forgot, and the cakes burned. And she had to scold him. 
Anyway, this guy, not very good in the kitchen, still is called the Great. But what he did is that he hanged the judges who falsely, illegally, or immorally hanged others. Do you see? I do not believe you will find this book, The Mirror of Justices, on the reading list of many law schools today. And, in truth, it was not translated or published for a hundred years. <laughs> but you can read it online. I, I recommend it's curious. There's 44 of these judges. And he gives the crimes for which they are to be hanged. For hanging others. And he'll tell you what they were. So that's the second provision of the Charter of the Forest. The, f the third one is this. If he hath forested his own wood, then it shall remain forest, saving the common, common of herbage and of other things in the same forest to them who before were accustomed to have the same. Now here we have the word common introduced in the Charters of Liberty. That's not quite accurate. But notice that it accompanies the principle of reparation, which is also found in both the charters. That is, the king must return the forests that he has taken, or that his father took, or that his grandfather took, which at that time consisted of a third of England. This was the principle of reparation that you will find in both charters of liberty. Now, the common of herbage meant simply the power to put into the woods some cows. Those useful beasts who convert cellulose into lactose and whose warmth may comfort families in their cottages. Cheese, cream, Milk, butter, yogurt, not to mention beef and steak. These are some of the gifts of the cow. I see I've excited someone's appetite. <laughs> this is subsistence in that day and age, to have access to the commons. Do you follow? This is what I'm building to. And fourth, the fourth that I wish to quote from the chart of the forest, every free man may adjust his own wood within our forest at his pleasure and shall take panage. Now this refers to the gift of the pig. For panage means the nuts, acorns, bark, and fruits that the, fig, that the pig feeds upon in the woods. Now, E.P. Thompson, the social historian, who Gary mentioned uh, I studied with, took all of his students to go visit Miss, Miss Ashby, Miss, Miss uh, A.K. Ashby, who wrote a biography of her father, a farmer, in Warwickshire, in the UK. Now, his father was a secretary to a pig club, 
during the Great Depression of English agriculture of the 19th century. And his experience at the pig club led him to conclude there could be real citizenship if only the framework of life was right. This he told her, and she passed it down. And recently, when I was in Lincolnshire, UK, visiting the Charters of Liberty that I mentioned, I came across some minutes of the Scowby Pig Club in Scunthorpe, which I would like to share with you as an indication of how grassroots democracy worked in England and as a suggestion for some of the practices of our own practices in the USA. Are you ready for this? I'm taking you to the other hemisphere, to the UK, to the Lincolnshire, to Scunthorpe, to Scowby, to a pig club, and we're sitting around with a bunch of pig keepers going about our business. And here's how they did it. Now, I'd like to try some accent, but just forgive me, just for fun. <laughs> During meeting hours, only one person shall speak at a time and be upstanding and addressing himself to the chairman. And no one shall interrupt a member while speaking, provided he utter his sentiments in a cool and dispassionate manner, and not wander from the subject. Now, if he should digress, the chairman shall call him to order. No member shall be allowed to leave the room whilst another is speaking without leave of the chairman. And anyone so offended shall be fined threepence. So, there's democracy in England among the common people. Cool, huh? Well, to me it is. But I'm not kidding, we need some of these practices. Now, I know there are new forms of democracy, new forms of having meetings that come out of the shack dwellers movement to make sure everyone gets a chance to speak, especially those less used to speaking. And I know there's other new methods of democratic practice that arose in the Occupy movement throughout the world, like the people's might and repetition. But I still think that we have some things to learn from the Scowby Pig Club of Lincolnshire. In the, yes. I mean, those of us in the States, our meetings can get very unruly. <laughs> and they can be nasty, too. And feelings can be hurt unless some simple rules are followed. Because we do have our differences. But back to pigs. 
I do not need to emphasize the importance of the pig to the diet and the lives of the common people of England, and also to its politics. You know, Edmund Burke, the great conservative, referred to the common people as the swinish multitude. And Thomas Spence, the great English communist, wrote a newspaper called Pig's Meat. Just to put his nose up to Edmund Burke, the conservative. Anyway, these are my simplicities. That milk comes from cows and bacon from pigs. In addition, fire comes from wood. And chapter 7 of Magna Carta reads, At her husband's death, she shall have, meanwhile, her estovers in common. That's from the big chart. So now you've caught me, because earlier I said in the chart of the forest was the first place where the word common appears, but now you hear it in chapter 7 of Magna Carta. If you're not following, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but what I would like you to know, and which is something of a challenge for us, I think, in the 21st century, I've introduced to you three words which are not familiar Though I believe in, in Africa, the practices for which they stand may be familiar. And these three words are herbage, panage, and now estovers. That is, the right to graze a cow on the common, the right to put a pig into the forest, and now estovers. What are estovers? I need a drink. <laughs> Perhaps you do too, after all this, but you haven't been talking. This, I need to wet my whistle, and also I need to do a check with the time. Ten minutes. Okay, you have the permission to leave, according to the Scalby rules of the Scalby Big Club. Now, Estovers was the custom of taking wood for the purpose of house repair or acquiring components for tools or for fuel. Thus, the widow of England had access to wood for habitation, tools, and fuel. She could cook she could have be protected from the elements. And this was all. And I was rather pleased with myself having discovered the meaning of Esther. Until a week ago, or not, a, a month ago, when I came across Henry of Bracton, his On the Laws and Customs of England, which was written at the same time as Magna Carta, or just after. He said that Estovers includes fishing. And according to him, in addition to wood for subsistence purposes, as it also was alimony for the separated woman, separated from her husband. Moreover, 
F-stovers were permitted, not permitted, were the rights to those who were imprisoned and their families. The felon may be apprehended and security demanded of him saving his reasonable estovers as long as he is in prison and to his family and their necess necessaries. And according to a statute of Edward I, it included both food and clothing. So this we need in the USA where the prison is deliberately placed far away from the loved ones of the incarcerated. And the wives, the children, the parents of those in prison have a great difficulty in trying to come and support their husbands, their sons, their uncles, their fathers, even their grandparents in prison. So I think that these three words for our protein, for our vitamins, for our, for our fuel, perhaps we can find, well, I was going to say lawyers to help us, but we must do it. And I'm saying nothing that's not in the click-down chart. The one principle here that an overall principle that needs recovery is that of the commons. Now, I only have six or seven minutes, and I want to conclude this lecture, as I promised, by explaining to you Juneteenth. And I also want to recite to you two poems, one of which I want you to memorize. However, before doing that, I'd wanted to do a whole history of the 800 years under five arches of the commons. What does this term mean? I wanted to go through each of the centuries to the time of the birth of capitalism and Thomas More's utopia, where the commons is now enriched by American experiences. I wanted to go to the end of the 16th century to the Church of England and its hideous 39 articles, the 38th of which says, the doctrine that Christians share all goods in common is heretical. That church in its origin was against the commons. And then I want to take you to the 17th century at the time, I believe, that the Europeans came to South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. Mid-century? Yes. And I want to show how in England, a slave dealer by the name of Jared Winstanley was cheated by his partner in London, and he changed and reformed, and he became, his name is Jared Winstanley, and he became the finest and first English communist there ever was. His writing to this day is hot. <laughs> Careful. It'll burn your fingers. Winstanley's the name. He was a digger on George's Hill. So for him, 
The commons was not an airy-fairy theory for the professor. It was something to actually do on the land. Practice and theory are united in the flames of this man, Winstanley. And then I wanted to, let's see, to go on to the 18th century, to the period that I have been studying and that I have come to Rhodes University to finish this book on. It's a, a tremendous period when sovereignty and the commons diverge. The time of the great enclosures and confinement when the prison, the factory, the plantation, the school, the forms of confinement, where we sit and can't even look at the sky. Oh, thank you for opening the door. <laughs> I can see out. How can you teach without looking at the sky? The universe must be there for us to see. This, okay. <laughs> you know that. You're just asking, won't he get on with it? Yes. Okay, I shall, I promise. But I, I, I must go back to Edward Thompson and to the fifth gate of the common, the fifth arch of the common, which I put in, in 1940, 1941. When Edward went off to war and packed in his kit the story of English freedom, that is a story of the commons. And saw how that word goes through history. And I wanted to bring to your attention Donna Moore, Donna Tor, who said that the millions have entered, who have been excluded from history in 1940 now enter it. She was referring to the people of Africa, of South America, of Asia, of China. I wanted to refer also to Mary Inman, who called for wages for housework in 1941. I wanted to call your attention to Henry Miller, the American who was... I wanted to call your attention to Niren Bevan, to Nye Bevan, the national health man who said that every person should have access, equal access to health. All of these accomplishments of 1940-41, another arch. But this is when the state moves in, you see, to take responsibility for subsistence. It's no longer from below by the, those concerned. The enclosure of the commons is the beginning of our epoch. And it goes to the time of the artificial creation of two political entities whose time is done. I refer to the USA and the UK. Their historical time on, on earth, in my opinion, has finished. They are not good for human beings. They are political entities of war-making, land robbery, and enslavement. The USA in 1787. The UK in 1801. But what we're to do, I don't know. But we must start thinking and working on it. And the commons must be our base. They were entities for that vast enclosure that I mentioned. And now I'll bring my lecture to a close by asking you to memorize the following poem. 
I will recite it, if I can remember it, and then I'll go over it with you, and then we'll do it together. Are you ready? The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, but lets the greater villain loose who steals the common from the goose. Not so fast. I'll do it once again, and then we'll all do it. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, but lets the greater villain loose who steals the common from the goose. Now together. The man or woman who steals the goose off the common, but lets the greater villain loose Oh, now I have